Isn't that a beautiful song? And who could have dreamed or ever foreseen that we would hold God in our hands? God with us. That's going to be our theme over the next four weeks. Um, actually, that song is the song that the children are going to be singing in the Nativity service uh, this Sunday morning down at the church in Sandabir when we all gather together there. They've been practicing it over the last few weeks, and that's a line that keeps coming back through those choruses. Who could have dreamed or ever foreseen the good news that God would come and be among us? Emmanuel, God with us, is one of the names given to Jesus. Uh, in the gospel stories in Matthew. Um, And so we're going to be, over the next four weeks, thinking about different aspects of what it means for God to be with us. And first of all, this week, we're looking at God, the God who's with us in the promise. That it isn't really just Christmas where God begins to be with us, but that he's been with us from the beginning and will be with us to the very end of the age, as he promises to be and is with us in the present moment, and has always been and present with his people. But today we're looking back, all the way back, right to the first few chapters of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to think about this line that struck me from the song um, we just sang. He will carry our curse, and death he'll reverse, so we can be daughters and sons. Did you hear that? It's one of the lines that kind of chokes me up. He'll carry our curse, and death he'll reverse. So I thought we would go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. God makes the heavens and the earth. Chapter two, you kind of zoom in on a little bit of that creation as he forms man and woman from the dust of the ground. And then chapter three, everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong as Eve and then Adam um, take the fruit and turn away from God and death and sadness and darkness and chaos begin to come into the world with the help of the snake. So we're going to think about Jesus and his relationship with the snake, about this first promise of good news that we find in Genesis 3. So I'm going to read you the whole chapter. If you've got it there, um, look at it with me and see if you can spot any times where God is with us and what that means in the story. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The snake said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, you can look back in chapter 2, God hadn't said that. God had said, Eat from every tree in the garden. In fact, plant more gardens. Fill the earth with gardens and eat from them. But there's one tree you shouldn't eat from. He'd given them a test. He'd given them an opportunity to show that they loved him and that they would obey him um, just because they loved him by not eating from this tree in the middle of the garden. But the snake comes and kind of twists it and says, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat from... We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. She's added in the you must not touch it bit, but she's dead right. If you eat that fruit, God says you'll die. But what does the serpent say? You will certainly, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can hear him beginning to tempt her. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Seems like he's been standing there all along and not doing anything to protect her from this snake. She gave gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for the field, so for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's a really merciful thing God does because humankind is twisted. And, um, and if we were to live forever in this kind of twisted, dark and sinful state, just imagine the mess we would make in the world. Um, so it's a gracious thing that God does to say, don't eat from that tree anymore, you're not allowed. So verse 23. The Lord banished them, banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a tragic story. It's a story with an awful lot in there that we could talk about. But really, I wanted to focus mostly on one verse right in the middle of that story. Let me read it to you again. It's what God, the second half of what God says to the serpent. And I will put enmity, I'll make enemies of you and the woman, between you and the woman, and between her offspring, so your offspring and hers. And then it, it goes singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we've got this promise echoing around in our heads. In all the darkness and sadness of it, we've got this promise that there's going to be an epic struggle. And, excuse me, I think it's this. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, there's going to be an epic struggle between humanity, the, the children of the woman, and evil personified in the snake. That there's going to be a struggle, that we're going to have a hard time of it. But in the end, somebody is going to come. One child of the woman, one of her offspring, he is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, crush evil, crush darkness, crush sin and all that's wrong with the world once and for all. But in the process, he'll be wounded. He'll be struck as well. He'll be um, cursed or crushed in his heel, but the head of the serpent is gonna be crushed. I don't know if you have much um, experience with snakes. Uh, they're the, one of the things that come up in my nightmares. I don't know about you as well. There are some strange people who seem to like them and kind of keep them as pets and that kind of thing, but snakes just creep me out. And generally speaking, they do for humanity. We have something between us and snakes. I grew up in Malaysia, or at least partly in school there, and um, in a place that was with jungle all around, and I had lots of run-ins with snakes, and my friends had lots of run-ins with snakes. We used to 
catch them once or twice in my school life. We caught some snakes, put them in a fish tank um, without any water in and fed them frogs that we found in the stream. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, one of my favorite stories, Mr. Large, our biology teacher, uh, dissected the snake cut its head off, threw the venomous head straight into the jungle. It was a pit viper. You can look it up. Bright green, really beautiful snake, but scary as well. And he dissected it and found the frog guts and frog skeletons inside the, the, the guts of the frog. It was an amazing memory imprinted on my mind, but snakes are hor horrible creatures. And here is the story of a snake or a snake-like creature. Um, this almost like a dragon-like creature. If you uh, read other parts of the Old Testament, there's these dark, chaotic, scary things that morph into different shapes and different prophecies and different stories, different poems that you're reading in the Old Testament. And they kind of represent chaos and darkness and nothingness and, and death. And it's from that kind of darkness and chaos that God has lifted land and filled land and sea and air in the creation with good living things. And then here comes this snake again. Here comes this um, evil monster that's kind of a representation of the um, of chaos and death and darkness and he's sneaking into the garden again in the form of a snake I don't know having taken over a snake I don't know how it works exactly but a speaking snake and it maybe sounds like a mad story but it's what happens in the story is the story of our lives and the story of our history that we come from in the words of C.S. Lewis who's had a couple of special anniversaries this week anniversary of his death and his birthday um, in this past week, so we're going to have a bit of C.S. Lewis today. C.S. Lewis says in one of the Narnia Chronicles, um, one of the characters, Aslan, is speaking to children, to the children. And he says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is honour enough to raise the chin, to raise the head of the poorest beggar. And shame enough to lower the head of the the greatest king on earth. You come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. We're descended from these two people who made this first turn away from God. And so we've been turning away from him ever since, who committed this first sin. And so we've been sinning. It's like it's written into our DNA almost from, from as long as I can remember. I've been turning away from God, giving him the cold shoulder, blaming other people like they do. I'm taking things that aren't my own. Sinning is something that seems to be written deep into what we are now. And not just um, conscious rebellion against God, but also like the effects of sin and the darkness of sin seem to have leaked into and stained the whole of the world around us so that we get sick and our bodies age and decay and fall apart before our eyes. And our loved ones live far, far away and eventually separated from us by death. Death comes into the world, as you read in the story, it's one of the curses for sin that comes into our lives and frustration comes into our lives. And instead of Adam and Eve living in harmony with each other, living in harmony with their natural environment, living in harmony with animals that they seem to be able to understand in a strange way, living in harmony with heavenly beings and with God himself walking with them, they recognize his voice as he speaks to them. Instead of all of that harmony and blessing and goodness and just naked, unashamed life, now there's death. There's death under the serpent. There's two big sections really to this sermon today. First is to think about death under the snake. And the second is to, to hear that there's life in the sun. So death under the snake, well, we know all about that. We call it life. Um, and it ends in death, but really it's a kind of deathly, stained, 
dark, shadowy existence here in the Shadowlands. It's a, it's a hard place to live, isn't it? East of Eden, locked outside of the garden, away from the tree of life, away from God, feeling that we're not really sure if he's there at all, or when we're, even when we're sure that he's there, that he can be quite quiet and feel quite distant. And we're not sure if our prayers are working. And it's a hard thing to live in this land that's under the shadow of death. And the snake is the one who's responsible for that, along with Adam and Eve, of course. And God gives them a curse, makes human life difficult, childbearing, work, puts frustration into their relationships, puts frustration into their relationship with the ground and with each other. And, and he seems to recede into the distance. I wonder if you notice this. Um, probably not, because it would take you a good few readings to spot it. But God has different names in this story. Right at the beginning in the first verse, he's called the Lord God, right? The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And then in all of the speech between the serpent and the woman, he's just called God. 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 That's how the serpent names him. And it's more like the title. It's the word Elohim. It's kind of the title of God, like president or something like that. So it's not the revealed name of God, which is Yahweh, or it's translated Lord with capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles. It's not that name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Lord God. It's the more cold and distant God kind of title that's used until what happens? At the end of the conversation, after the fruit's eaten, the deed is done and the Lord God comes close and speaks to them and calls out and comes looking for them. And so it's this little bit in the middle. The Most of chapter two has been called the Lord God as he does the intimate work of creating people. And then all of a sudden it seems to go cold and distant as the evil one comes in, as the liar, the serpent, the tempter comes in and seems to push God onto the sidelines. And then the Lord comes back close to them, seeking them, clothing them, um, sending them out of Eden, but promising, promising that one day somebody's going to come and put it right. So that's a picture of death. We call it life, but really it's, it's death, isn't it? Or at least it's life stained by, overshadowed by death. Death under the snake. What is it like? Well, it's about distance, distance from God, so we don't seem to know him anymore. It's about distance from each other so that we, we often just fall out and go cold and struggle even with the people that we love most in the world. And we feel distant from the world around us and we use it and abuse it and, and, um, and have made a real mess of, of even the ground underneath our feet. See, life under the serpent is a living death. It's a really sad place where sin seems to reign, where the serpent of chaos and darkness and sin has brought us to live in darkness. But what happens? There's this promise right in the beginning when everything seems to go on, good to go wrong. There's a promise right at the beginning that God is going to fix it, that something's going to happen. And he's going to use one of us, a seed of the woman, a son of Adam, a seed of Eve is going to be born into the world. And one day he's going to crush the snake. And so the whole of the Old Testament, you could think about it like this, is a search for the son. There's a search for the one who's going to come and crush the serpent. And there's lots of stories that seem like we found him. Eve, actually straight, straight away, you can read into the next chapter, she names her son, a really hopeful name, as if she thinks this is going to be the one. This is God who's going to 
come into our world and crush the serpent, but it doesn't happen. In fact, it goes even more wrong, and the first murder happens. And all the way through Genesis, it's a story of sadness, of kind of the, le- the leaking out of sin and darkness into the whole of the world like an oil slick. Just can't seem to get that genie back in the bottle. Not by our own strength. So we're waiting for the serpent crusher. And you can think of, there's lots of Old Testament stories where women themselves crush serpenty, snaky enemies. There's a story about a woman one time who, when the, the Israelites are being attacked by an army, she takes a big millstone, chucks it off the battlements, and it falls on the head of the general who's attacking them and crushes his head. Rings a bell. A woman crushing a serpent's head, and we're thinking back to those promises. And then the really famous one is David. Boy David, the seed of the woman, somebody who's come from the line of the people of Israel. And what does he do? Well, he faces off with a snake. I don't know if you've ever thought of Goliath like that, but Goliath in the story is wearing scale armour. Scales. He's like a snake who's coming to the Garden of Israel, who's taunting them, who's, who's um, a little bit like the snake in Genesis 3. Your God isn't very good. Our gods are much better. He's kind of taunting them like that. And then David comes along and he challenges Goliath and defeats him. And how does he defeat him? He crushes his head. Do you remember with a little stone, flings it, smashes him in the forehead, and then he, just for good measure, cuts his head off and parades it around for the next couple of chapters of the story. And you're supposed to be thinking back to the seed of the woman, the son who's going to be born, who's going to crush the serpent and set us all free, who's going to carry our curse and reverse death and make us daughters and sons again and bring us home. That's who we're looking for in the whole Old Testament. But then David, I mean, he's a great king in so many ways, but he seems to become pretty snakish in the end. See, this is what has happened, that it's, it's not just that we live under the serpent, but we've joined forces with him. David ends up taking a woman who doesn't belong to him, who's not his wife, and doing whatever he wants with her, and then killing her husband to try and cover it up. And he, he really begins to look like a snake, like somebody who takes what's not his own, like somebody who lies to cover it up, just like his father and mother, Adam and Eve, did. David shows that really, at heart, he's becoming a serpent himself. He's becoming a snake. And so we're looking forward to the one who'll crush evil. But we've also, we've also got a, a streak of fear in our hearts that if we're honest with ourselves, if God is going to crush evil, then he might need to crush me. If he's going to get rid of evil once and for all in the world, he might need to get rid of me. And how on earth is that going to work? How can I live back in Eden when I'm like a serpent myself? How can I have any hope in the face of death when I, when I seem to be very good at bringing deathly shadows with my own hands and my own works in the world? So you see, we're stained inside and out. This whole world seems to be affected covered with the oil slick of sin and death and darkness and chaos and that's life under the snake and we're waiting we're waiting we're waiting for the sun to come and free us and then hundreds and hundreds of years later thousands of years after adam and eve a little boy is born and they call him emmanuel god with us and do you know what he does he goes through some things in his life that sound terribly familiar to us Like he goes out into a desert, it's not a garden this time, but it's a desert, and another snakish character, in fact it's the same snakish character, comes along and gives him temptations. Says, come on, you can get all this power for yourself, come on, you'll get this glory, come on, feed yourself, come on, test God. 
take things into your own hands. Become who you can be. Be the all-powerful one that you, that you know that you are truly deep down. And, and you can do that by taking things into your own hands and living your own life on your own terms. That's the gist of the temptations that Jesus faces against the snakish character in the wilderness. And do you know what he does? Instead of eating the fruit, instead of following with the snake, he stands against him and he passes the test. He takes God's word and he turns it back on the serpent. And the Satan, the enemy, the adversary, scuttles away and hides, leaves him alone for a while. And then later on, Jesus does a lot of stomping, stomping around. First, you might remember, he stomps on the storm. And water and sea in the Bible is often about chaos and darkness, right? Like right back at the beginning. And Jesus is there when the disciples are in a storm, terrified in the boat. And what's he doing? Just calmly walking through, stomping on the waves, stomping on the chaos and darkness. And then he speaks when they ask him. He speaks and says, quiet, be muzzled, be still. And the wind and the waves, the chaos and the darkness of the storm seem to listen to his voice and they sit down. It's like he crushes them. Like he puts them back in their place and puts them into the dust. Um, we're beginning to build up a little picture of somebody who's defeating Satan's temptations, who's putting an end to chaos. And then he goes out among the people and he's healing people, putting them right again. And he's casting out the dark spiritual forces that are troubling people's lives, demons. And they go running away from him. And then he takes his disciples. And in Luke chapter 10, you could go and read it later, something amazing happens. Luke chapter 10 Jesus sends out his disciples and says, you go and start doing the same thing. Tell them that the kingdom is coming. On earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom is coming. That the king is here and heal people if they need to be healed. Tell them about me. And they end up casting out demons and all sorts. And they come back and they say, it's amazing. It all happened. We healed people. We were casting out demons. And Jesus says to them, yeah, I saw. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Listen to this. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. To overcome all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. But don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Did you hear that? That Jesus is the one. We can begin to build up a picture if you're reading the stories in the Gospels and looking out for that. Build, be, beginning to build up a picture of him being the one who's going to crush the serpent. Who's going to stand up to evil. Who's going to be thoroughly good, really beautiful in all of his life. He's going to crush evil and put it in its place. And... And he's going to have a whole host of people, disciples, followers, people who belong to him, who are going to do the same. Who once he's crushed the serpent and walked over, we're going to walk behind him in his footsteps and keep that serpent trampled down. That's what the disciples do in this story in Luke 10. Jesus rejoices with them and he says, actually, just remember there's something even better. Being known by God, your name being written in heaven. That's something really mind-blowing. But can you see Jesus is beginning to crush evil. And then something very strange happens. Je Jesus is crushed by evil. He goes to another garden towards the end of the story and he's in bits. He's sweating drops of blood. And he's praying about a cup that he has to drink, about something that he's got to do, which he can almost not bear to do. But then he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I'll do it. I'll... I'll do what you've commanded me to do. He's doing what Adam couldn't do, doing what Eve couldn't do. And what is it that he has to do? What is it that's, um, that's almost breaking him just thinking about it? Is death. And that was one of the serpent's weapons, isn't it? That's the thing that, that seems to be his food, 
He's the one who's, do you remember in the curses, crushed into the dust, you shall wriggle on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And then Adam's told that, that he's made from dust and he'll return to dust. So the serpent's the one who's eating the dust. It's like he's eating us and he owns us and he's over us and we're afraid of death. And we live in its shadow all of our lives and then it takes us. And it's horrid to live under, to live under the serpent. And then Jesus comes and he's beginning to beat back that darkness. He's beginning to undo all the effects of, um, of that oil slick of sin that we've unleashed in the world. He's beginning to get the devil running scared. That snake slithers back out of the garden and leaves him alone for a while. He's beginning to win and then he loses. He's beginning to win, lights breaking out, and then all of a sudden an eclipse comes, blots out the light of the sun. Literally it happened in the story. It was dark from noon until three in the afternoon when it should have been light. And the sun, who's the light of the world, went dark, died. The voice that had spoken creation into being said it's finished. And then he closed his mouth and breathed his last and died. And he had all these, what's going on in that story? Why on earth is that good news? Why on earth would he do that? How on earth is that him crushing the serpent? Well, it's, it's a real mystery, isn't it? It's something to think about all this afternoon, to try and chew it over and wonder, how does that work? Because surely, surely it would be better to take up a sword and go and just wipe out all the nasty rulers and put Jesus in their place. But he's got the opportunity to do that. Peter even tells him, no, you shouldn't go and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and says, we're not going to just march into Jerusalem with a sword and sort them out. What we're going to do is die instead. And it's a real mystery. Why does he let that happen? And then we remember the prophecy again, right the way back to Genesis 3 and say, oh yeah, he would be hurt in the process. That snake would strike his heel and in the striking, in the damaging, the hurting of that son, his head would be crushed. So maybe that's what the resurrection is about. And we begin to think on in the story and it's a mystery, it's a strange one, how the light of the world is swallowed up in darkness. How the serpent crusher seems to be swallowed up and crushed by the serpent, taken into the stomach of death. But three days later, just like Jonah back in those old stories, just like Daniel in the lion's den, or the friends in the fiery furnace, or David when he's being chased by Saul, just like in those old stories, when all hope seems to be lost and darkness has had the final say, just when it seems like it's over, God writes a new chapter. The third day comes and Jonah gets puked up from the belly of the whale. Daniel comes out of the lion's den against all odds. The friends come out of the furnace. David comes out of the cave and is crowned king, raised up to the highest place. Joseph is put at the right hand of Pharaoh and we should have seen it coming. We should have seen it coming that this was the plan all along for the serpent to bite Jesus, to swallow him up and then to be destroyed from the inside out. So I don't know if you've seen the film, uh, a TV show called The Mandalorian. There's a brilliant picture of it. In one of the first episodes, The Mandalorian is like a space trooper, rescuer, kind of a guy in Star Wars. And uh, what he does is he's helping some people fight against this evil snake that crawls under the ground uh, in the desert. And the way that he eventually beats the snake is, and it's, it's a horrible moment for a few moments, is he straps a load of explosives to himself, carries a lot of bombs, and then lets the snake eat him. And everything goes quiet, the music goes silent, the snake disappears for a few seconds, everybody thinks that the hero is gone forever and hope is dead, and then there's an almighty explosion. 
and the Mandalorian comes flying out of the of the of the dust of the desert with this kind of rocket pack and bits of snake serpent desert, desert weird thing uh, begin to fall in chunks around and then they eventually eat the eat the meat in the barbecue in the evening. It's a bit disgusting, but it's a great picture of what Jesus does. He gets swallowed by the serpent and we think all that hope is lost. The devil's done his worst. He's pulled him down to death. Light is extinguished forever. And then there's the most almighty explosion on the third day. Out he comes. Except it's not a story. It's not just a TV show. It actually happened in human history. Somebody, God himself, with us, bore every single thing that we have to bear. His family thought he was mad and and turned their backs on him at points. His closest friends abandoned him and betrayed him. He, he was killed in the most brutal fashion. He suffered every kind of suffering and temptation and mental pressure and physical pain. He's tasted it all for us. The devil's done his worst. He's lived under this shadow and then was submerged by the shadow and in the most almighty explosion of light, rose again on the third day so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of death anymore. So that Satan would have his teeth pulled out, his stomach blown out, that the serpent would be crushed once and for all. And so do you see, Jesus has scars, doesn't he? But they're scars that are healed over. Jesus has scars because that serpent did his worst and did some damage. But in doing his worst, really just put God's plan, put the final seal, the final ribbon on God's amazing plan to defeat the snake once and for all. He did it for us. And now we get to walk after him as his people, as his sons and daughters, knowing that this curse is reversed, that we can put relationships back together again, that we can live with, uh, with the world under our feet as stewards of it, rather than, um, rather than thieves and, and abusers of it. We can have our relationship, this is the best thing of all, put back together again with our maker. So that when he comes calling in the garden, he says, where are you? Where are you? You can, you can come out and speak to him unashamed. You don't have to hide anymore. He can know you and you can know him and there can be peace. There can be love and warmth and you can be his daughter. You can be his son. As he's begun to put the whole world back together again. It's just such really good news, isn't it? That he's with us. He's with us in the promise. From the very beginning, this was his plan. He knew it would happen. And maybe that, that gives us big questions. Why has he let this all happen? I can't answer all of those questions. I don't know why he let that happen to you. I don't know why he hasn't come back yet and put it all right again. We get some clues though. I mean, I don't know exactly why, but we do get some clues. One clue is that he's being patient, that he wants as many people as possible to hear about Jesus and to come and trust him and have their lives put back together again, to come and not have to fear death again, to come and be able to trample on the serpent and not listen to his lies anymore, but come and know truth in knowing Jesus, who is the truth. To not have to listen to his accusations anymore, that you're a sinner, that you don't deserve anything good in the world, that God has no interest in you. Those are accusations that come from the snake, from the liar. You don't have to listen to those anymore. You can trample them. Because Jesus, what has Jesus done? He's taken away all your sin. What has Jesus done? He's taken your death. He's taken your punishment. He's taken everything that you deserve so that you can come close to God, so that you can be washed of your sin, so that you can live in the sun. Isn't that so much better than when we live under the snake's rule, than when our lives are just tainted by darkness and shadows? It's a sad thing, isn't it, to live in this life which is really surrounded by death? 
But it's a really joyful thing to come and know Jesus, to come and live in his victory over the snake, to come and see that it was promised from the beginning that this is what God has always intended, to come and see that he suffered like us, with us, that he knows what it's like to be you. And so you can pray to him and say, Lord, help me. Give me the same strength that got you through abandonment, that got you through temptation, that got you through pain and betrayal and even death. Would you come and give me that strength? Would you come and give me that courage? Would you come and show me, help me see how you've trampled on that serpent and brought a pathway into light? How you were with me right there at my right hand. How goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. How you carry me through the valley of the shadow of death and bring me to wide open spaces, to clear running streams, to good pasture. God is a good God. He's planned it from the beginning to crush evil. So the good news is you don't have to crush it on your own strength. You need to follow Jesus, come and trust him. And then you can see, you can see life. You don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to rely on your own strength anymore. You can have him, the serpent crusher, in the center of your heart, at your right hand, guiding you, leading you, carrying you through everything, everything you'll face in these shadow lands until he writes your next chapter. So let's pray and ask that you would help us, help us to see that really clearly and help us to, um, to take hold of it and live in the hope of his victory all the days of our lives. Lord, we thank you that this is true and really good news. We thank you that you are the one who took our curse, who even took those thorns on your brow. Lord, who took all of our pain, carried all of our sorrows, all of our sin, all of this darkness, you swallowed it up and in one mighty explosion on the third day brought life to the universe again. Lord, we thank you that you are the true king, that we don't have to listen to the serpent and his lies and his accusations anymore, but we can come and know truth and freedom in you. And so we pray that you'd help us to know that today. Lord, help us to come and lay our lives before you, to be willing to give up everything because we know that in you is life. Lord, we pray that you'd help us um, to see you, help us to give thanks to you, um, help us to know you for ourselves. And we pray that you would give us some victories this week. The Lord, that in your strength, we would say no to temptation. In your strength, we would kiss goodbye to those old sins. Lord, in your strength, we would get through suffering and darkness and be able to pass on that good news to others as well. Amen. Amen.